Hello and welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. This episode, we'll look at Summerled. He was a petty king in Northwest Britain of a mixed Celtic and Scandinavian ancestry who ended up creating a kingdom encompassing many of the lands surrounding the Irish Sea. In doing so, he created a kingdom of the Southern Isles, and despite his foreign roots, he helped strengthen the Gaelic influence on Scottish culture that is still present today. As always, maps and images can be found on the website, almostforgotten.squarespace.com. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at almostforgottenpodcast.gmail.com or find me on Twitter at the Almost Forgot. This is Season 8, Episode 6, Summerled, and this is The Almost Forgotten. Summerled was probably born at the very end of the 11th century, and despite a multitude of clan histories linking him to the three Kalas, legendary 4th century kings of Ireland, we really don't know much of his family. His father was likely someone of importance in Argyll, a territory in western Scotland, and he was probably of mixed Norse Gaelic ancestry, which was pretty common in that region at the time. And at the time, beyond the British Isles, in the first half of the 12th century, as Summerled rose to prominence, Kings Louis VII and VIII were really the first kings in France to start strengthening the monarchy and consolidating power from the barons. The Holy Roman Empire transitioned to the Hauenstaufen dynasty, which took it to its biggest geographical extent. In the south of the empire, Matilda of Tuscany, season 5, episode 5, ruled semi-independently in northern Italy until she died in 1155. And in southern Italy, 1130 saw the crowning of Roger II of Sicily, Season 3, Episode 5. Northern Europe was seeing the end of the Viking Age. The Danes launched their last massive raids in the 1080s, which went nowhere. Norway was still involved in the West, as we'll see, but in 1130 a civil war broke out which led to a century of conflict there. Poland was somewhere between a kingdom and a duchy, depending on the day. Hungary grew significantly, capturing Croatia, as well as Dalmatia, for a time. To the northeast, the Kievan Rus, formed by Swedish Vikings, was in decline, while to the southeast, the Roman Empire was in a period of revival, under Alexios Komnenos, who died in 1118 AD, although Constantinople continued to flourish under his successors. Spain saw the Reconquista slowing in its advance, However, the county of Portugal had a victory against the Almoravid dynasty ruling in Cordoba that resulted in the founding of the Kingdom of Portugal in 1139. The Almoravids, meanwhile, who ruled southern Spain and much of northwest Africa, were overthrown by the Almohads, who formed a caliphate. The Fatimid caliphate was in decline in Egypt and would fall before the end of the century. The Nubian kingdoms of Makuria and Elodia continued to rule there, while Ethiopia was ruled by one of its weaker dynasties and faced civil conflict. Smaller independent states covered the eastern Mediterranean, including the crusader states of Jerusalem, Antioch, and Tripoli, which had been established at the very end of the 11th century. The Seljuks ruled much of the region from the lower half of Mesopotamia through Afghanistan. Various khanates ruled the Central Asian steppe, 
with the Kipchaks the most powerful, ruling from the Pontic steppe north of the Black Sea, east past the Caspian, to the Aral Sea. India was well fragmented, while the Pagan Kingdom was one of the two large kingdoms in Southeast Asia, ruling most of today's Myanmar. The Khmer Empire to the east was the other, and they were building Angkor Wat for most of the first half of the century. China's powerful Song dynasty probably reached its greatest extent around this time, although they fractured in 1127, losing the northern portion to the Jin dynasty. The Chimor Empire was flourishing on the Peruvian coast, while the Toltec Empire of Mesoamerica collapsed around this time, and the golden age of the ancestral Pueblo culture probably was ending in the American Southwest. To the east of them, though, Cahokia was at a peak and could have had 30 or 40,000 residents, making it the largest city in what is today the United States. The next time a city there was that large was shortly after the Declaration of Independence was written. To the British Isles, where Summerled was born something like 30 years after William the Conqueror and his Norman knights invaded England. These Vikings by way of France made quick work of conquering Wales, although the Welsh soon shook off full control and remained relatively independent during the 12th century. To the north of England, the kingdom of Strathclyde, or Cumbria, the northernmost Britonic-speaking kingdom, still consisted of Britons, but was at this point a part of the kingdom of Scotland. And to the north was Scotland. Today, we call the entity there at this time the kingdom of Alba, but that's just the Scottish Gaelic term for Scotland. It's a distinction historians make today to separate the periods before and after the Scottish Wars of Independence. I'll probably just call it Scotland. A little Scottish geography is probably in order, so let's start with mainland Scotland. First off, Scotland was not a unified country at this time. That Alba thing was mostly in the eastern lowlands, but let's stick with the geography before we move to the politics. Just wanted you to keep that in mind. First off, the lowlands of Scotland are in the east and south, closer to the border with England, while the highlands, with its more rugged terrain, is in the northern and western portions. The Firth of Forth, an estuary which has Edinburgh sitting on its southern shore, is probably one of the more well-known features of Scotland. But to the south of the Firth of Forth, two rivers nearly meet to cut off the country from the rest of Britain. They don't meet, but the river coming from the east, the River Tweed, forms close enough of a border with England to just call it that. The river from the west is the River Clyde, and this is where the geography starts becoming really relevant to our story. South of the River Clyde is Galloway, and is not England, but rather quite a part of Scotland. North of Galloway, across the River Clyde, is Argyle, and really, the Highlands. Argyle is a big western Scottish land that has numerous peninsulas that jut into the sea, as well as rivers and crags and just perfect lands for being a seafaring people. Further north is the region of Murray, spelled M-O-R-A-Y, which was in some ways its own entity. And beyond that lay the Orkney Islands and the Shetlands even further north. But we won't concern ourselves much with those lands. We will concern ourselves, however, with the lands to the west of Argyle, the Hebrides. The Hebrides are a set of islands off the west coast of what is today Scotland. The inner Hebrides are closer to the mainland, 
and they include Isla and Jura in the south, Mull further north, and the second largest island in all of the Hebrides, the Isle of Skye. The Outer Hebrides are part of another island chain slightly farther west and a little more off the coast, and include the largest island of them all, Lewis and Harris, which is for some reason one island despite the name. And finally, further south, south beyond Galloway even, lay the Isle of Man, which held a commanding spot in the Irish Sea, and was the seat of its own kingdom. And oh yeah, speaking of islands, Ireland was like right there. Its closest spot across the North Channel from Scotland is only 12 miles, or 19 kilometers, and Northern Ireland can be seen from the Scottish Kintyre Peninsula on a clear day. Okay, so now that we've done a bit of the geography, I think we can get into the politics. Western Scotland, Ireland, and the islands in between were, by the 1100s, in their 4th century, give or take, of Viking rule. According to John Marsden in his book Summerled and the Emergence of Gaelic Scotland, quote, the West Highland coastland and the Hebrides had come to form a single cultural zone with Dublin and Man and a wider part of the Scandinavian world, which extended from Norway to Normandy, from the Norse trading towns of Ireland to the North Atlantic settlements of Iceland and beyond, unquote. But it's even more complicated than that. This wasn't land administered directly from Norway. Raiding had certainly taken place on and off for 400 years or so, but for Western Scotland and the Hebrides, it wasn't exactly a separate independent place before then. For a few hundred years before the Vikings came, the kingdom of Dalriada ruled much of the region, and that was covering lands that included Argyll, the islands, and Northern Ireland. It had been assumed that this kingdom started in Northern Ireland, or at least its founders did, but that isn't fully accepted nowadays. What is clear is that the kingdoms there were not defined by our modern political borders, and the Irish Sea is small enough that people traveled across it, as did political influence. Regardless of their origins, by the latter half of the first millennium AD, there were several Celtic groups in what is today Scotland. There were the Picts in the northeast, and the Britons in the south and west, identified closely with the Welsh today, and the other people, who we'll call the Gaels. The Gaelic languages today include Irish, Manx, the language of the Isle of Man, and Scottish Gaelic. Into this world came the Vikings, and they made their presence known. Many of them were Norse jarls, that is to say nobility, fleeing Norway as the king began to unite it. The Norse king, however, followed and subdued them. They began to push out the Dalriada from their lands, and they took parts of Ireland, especially Dublin. The Hebrides became Norse lands, and by the 9th century, there was a king of the Isles, who was essentially a vassal to a faraway king in Norway, as opposed to some local guy over on the east coast of Scotland. But these newcomers were far enough from home, and independent enough, and small enough in number, that they began to assimilate in some ways. What developed was a group known in Scottish Gaelic as the Galgale, the Foreign Gaels, sometimes called the Norse Gaels. By the latter part of the 11th century, the Norse kingdoms there were pretty well on their own. The king of Norway, Magnus Olofsson, decided they needed to be reminded who was their sovereign. He put someone on the throne of the Isle of Man, who was subsequently assassinated, 
So Magnus decided to take a fleet of 160 ships to really remind them. First, he stopped in Orkney and slapped a couple of yarls around there before heading down to the Hebrides and Man. He smacked people around there as well and may have made some forays onto the mainland. He negotiated a treaty with the King of Scots, cementing his rule over the islands. According to Marsden, although these islands had been ruled by Jarls and Vikings for a few centuries already, quote, Magnus's legacy to Scots history was the creation in the West of an extensive sea kingdom under formal Norwegian sovereignty, and so able to assert its own independence from the kingdom of the Scots, yet so far distant from the land of Norway as to be beyond the range of direct rule, unquote. Magnus died in the last year or so of the 11th century, and all evidence suggests that this was right around the time that Summerled was born. Summerled's first few decades are a mystery, but we know something of his family. Firstly, while some might argue he was Scottish and other evidence points to a Norse background, we can probably safely assume he was a Galgale. That is to say, he was Gaelic by culture and language, although he was connected to the Norse Viking leadership by blood as well. His name, Summerled, is of Norse origin, although he is referred to from a very early stage as Summerled Mac Gillibride, Summerled, son of Gillibride, in Gaelic. This is not something all the Norse kinglets out there had on their names, so it was either very deliberate, or more likely, another indication of his mixed heritage. Now, we don't know much about his father, this Gillibride, but we can assume he was a pretty big wheel down at the Cracker Factory. That is because Summerled married into a royal house, but also because of his nephews, who were able to make claims to the throne of Scotland. While we don't know his exact connection, probably it was Summerled's sister who was married to a certain Malcolm, the illegitimate son of Alexander I, who was king of Scotland until 1124. After Alexander died, his brother David became David I, King of Scotland, and was so for nearly 30 years. Summerled appears to have been content under David, and whether that was because he truly was, or because David was not one to be messed with, well, who knows. David marked a change in the Kingdom of Scotland because David was closely allied with Henry I, King of England, who helped him take the throne once Alexander died. Technically, he was a retainer of Henry, but that's a discussion for another time and another podcast. What's important is that Henry of England was a son of William the Conqueror. And that means David created a northern Anglo-Norman power base when he came. And as many listeners know, in the 12th century, the Normans were pretty well unstoppable on the battlefield. So messing with David and his several hundred Anglo-Norman knights was probably not wise. In fact, Summerled may well have been a military ally of David. After Henry of England died and Norman England erupted in civil war, David marched across the Tweed to, you know, help out slash grab some more land. After some successes, David was eventually defeated and pushed back, in no small part to having unarmored Gaelic men as a large part of his army, and armored Normans as a small part, and trying to defeat the English who had more significant numbers of Norman knights. This is a big tell as to why the Gaelic Scots in the West probably weren't keen on messing with the Norman-influenced and fully metal Scots surrounding David. Anyway, one of the contemporary accounts of the battle that routed the Scots 
included men of the Isles and men of Loth in Orkney. It has been imagined that Summerled was heavily involved in the fighting. And while we don't know, chances are he was in fact a part of this marauding Scottish army. At that point, he was likely a recognized petty king, a vassal to David. Summerled was certainly styled this way, but his kingliness was a sub-kingliness, as opposed to, you know, whatever the opposite of sub-king is. He was known as the Regulus of Argyle, which is a term distinct from the Rex of Argyle, literally meaning little king instead of king. Either way, it's still a king, which is more than I can say about myself. And while that involvement in David's march south is assumed but speculative, Summerled finally, firmly pops into the historical narrative in 1153, when he may have been something like 55 years old. What happened in 1153? Well, King David died, and his grandson Malcolm took over. Which, since David's son had already died, seems logical to you and I. But we are not the family of the former King Alexander I, David's older brother. Malcolm was only 12 when David died, which is always an invitation for rebellion. Rebellion did indeed flare up across the country, and one such fire was lit by the sons of a different Malcolm, the illegitimate son of Alexander. So you had Malcolm IV, King of Scotland, grandson of David I, against the grandsons of his older brother Alexander I. But what's important about the rebel grandsons is that, well, they also happen to be Summerled's nephews because their mom was Summerled's sister, we think. So Summerled, Lord of Argyle, rose in rebellion against his Scottish overlord in support of his nephews in 1153. Now, this may have also been an excuse that Summerled was looking for, as he had basically been able to act independently of David I. Sure, he owed some military allegiance and probably paid annual tribute, but he along with Fergus, the Lord of Galloway to his south, ruled pretty darn independently way out there in the west. David was probably content with this. According to Duncan and Brown in their paper, Argyle and the Isles in the Earlier Middle Ages, David, quote, had from Galloway and Argyle military contingents when he needed them, and he had two powerful marcher lords protecting the kingdom from the attacks of the Islesmen, unquote. Summerled may have felt an obligation to back his nephews in rebellion, but after David's death, he also probably wanted to make sure he could keep his cushy mini-kingdom without interference from the new king. Now, it was entirely possible that he was correct in the assumption that his independence may be in jeopardy. David had dealt with what seems to be a pretty major rebellion up north, in the region called Murray, in 1130. Angus, the lord of Murray, who also happened to be the grandson of the heir and stepson of that famous Scottish King Macbeth, led a rebellion and had Summerled's brother-in-law Malcolm at his side. They were promptly trounced, and Murray soon became more tightly integrated with and ruled by the Scottish king. Now, David didn't seem to have a need to interfere in the West, but it was the next logical place for David's successor, Malcolm IV, to look. Brother-in-law Malcolm, not the king one, was captured and imprisoned after that rebellion. Marsden speculates that perhaps Summerled's sister and her two young sons came to live with him in Argyle at that point. And those two boys, pretenders to the Scottish throne with some legitimate linkages to an actual king from the previous century, would have grown up in Summerled's household. Possibly. 
So it is with that context that we see Summerled, along with his nephews, rebelling against the new 12-year-old Scottish king in 1153. The historical record is pretty spotty about this. The rebellion itself ended rather quickly. But Summerled may have solidified his independence. It's all kind of speculation, but there is some record of a battle, although it is from a few centuries later. If we are to believe it, and we have no other record, so why not? Basically, King Malcolm IV's men came marching west to try to take out Summerled. So the Lord of Argyll mustered his forces and met them on the battlefield. A bunch of people died, there was kind of a stalemate, and everyone walked away. A pretty logical story comes out of this. The Scottish king sent an army to defeat Summerled. They couldn't do it, but neither could Summerled gain enough of a victory to press the rebellion forward. His nephews would remain unsatisfied, and they were eventually captured and imprisoned. As for Summerled himself, the whole course of events may have been just fine and dandy for him. He beat back the Scottish army, and his little sub-kingdom was kind of left alone again. He basically secured that independence he had wanted. So, rather than focus on Scotland, and the kingdom that was technically where he owed allegiance, he turned his attention to the west, to the islands. And that is because a mere five weeks after King David died, and that little rebellion kicked off, another king died. This one was King Olaf of the Isle of Man. The Isle of Man is an island in the Irish Sea, well to the south of the Hebrides, but its leader was a king, albeit a vassal king, unlike the other island leaders. So he was actually king of the isles rather than king of just the Isle of Man. It was an important position, especially to the Galgiel, the Norse Gaels that populated the region. He ruled not only Man, but the inner and outer Hebrides as well, although his influence may have varied depending on the island. Oh, and importantly, he wasn't a vassal of the King of Scotland, but rather of the King of Norway, just like they had been for centuries, which King Magnus Olafsson had come to remind everybody about the century earlier. But back to King Olaf of Man. So he had two children who we know of. One was a son named Godred, or something like Guthrithur in Norse, but let's stick with Godred. And the other was a daughter named Ragenhild. Ragenhild was married off to a nearby petty king that Olaf saw some value in becoming friends with through a marriage alliance. That king was Summerled. Summerled and Ragenhild had several sons together, so when Olaf died, Godred was named king, but Summerled's boys, as grandsons of Olaf and nephews of Godred, felt they had some claims themselves. Godred, though, was the heir apparent which is why Olaf had sent him off to Norway to give homage to the big king over there. But when Godred was gone, a few of Olaf's other nephews, who had lived in Ireland with their blinded and exiled father, decided to turn up on the Isle of Man. He agreed to meet with them, and they chopped off his head with an axe. They made some claims to the islands before rushing off to Galloway to conquer that next, but were forced back. Then in 1154, the next year, Godred returned from Norway. Stopping in Orkney first, the lords of the Hebrides heard about his return and named him king, and with their support, it was apparently no problem for him to take out his Irish cousins, and of course have them executed. Godred then seems to have settled in as king, under unanimous consent of his vassal lords, quite comfortably. So comfortably, in fact, that he started to rule with the proverbial iron fist. And at least some of the vassal lords weren't too thrilled about this. One of these men was Thorfinn, son of Otar. Now, Otar was a Galgiel, 
who was born on one of the Hebrides as a big shot and ended up taking an army to Dublin and capturing it for himself. He reigned as king of Dublin from the early 1140s until he was killed in 1148. His son Thorfinn was still around and was considered by a contemporary chronicle to be the most powerful chieftain under Godred. Thorfinn, being powerful, son of a king, all that, chafed under Godred's rule and decided to do something about it. He approached Summerled and said he'd much prefer it if Summerled's son Dubgall, or Dugal, were to be king of the Isles. Summerled jumped at the chance, apparently, although, much like the revolt of the nephews in Scotland, it may have been his doing all along. He probably had a strong relationship with the chieftains in the Isles. They may well have fought with him in the rebellion earlier. And, oh yeah, Godred was his brother-in-law. Marsden gives us some pretty sweet speculation on Summerled's diabolical plan to claim the Inner Hebrides, a logical move since they were just offshore from his kingdom, with some inside information. That is to say, his wife would have informed him that her brother would be such a bad king that rebellion was sure to follow. Quote, it only remained then to wait until Thorfinn Oderson and his kind had become so offended by their new king's tyranny as to welcome a rival claimant to the kingship, especially one endowed with a legitimate claim by right of his mother and a powerful ally in the person of his father, unquote. This is certainly a possibility, but it seems like a bridge too far to me, and that Marsden assumes a bit too much here. But it really doesn't matter. It certainly feels like Summerled could have, and most likely gladly would have, pushed this rebellion himself. And Thorfinn was just a convenient ally, rather than the impetus of the whole thing. Either way, Dougal, Thorfinn, and presumably Summerled made their way around the islands, gaining supporters, sometimes perhaps with a bit of force. Not everyone bought into the scheme, though, and one of the lords of the islands went and told Godred that someone was angling for his crown. So he was able to gather some troops and go fight this upstart. Summerled gathered 80 ships himself, presumably filled with troops, and in early January 1156, on the holiday of the Epiphany, the forces met at sea. Traditionally, the Battle of the Epiphany was believed to have taken place off the southwest coast of the island of Isla, the southernmost of the Hebrides. But Marsden argues that these highly experienced sailors, the men of this region used the sea as their highway, would not have taken the dangerous route around the west of Isla in midwinter due to the difficulty of the seas at the time. Rather, it would make more sense that they met in the Sound of Isla, a narrow and calmer stretch of water between Isla and Jura. The two sides may not have been evenly matched. It's possible that Summerled and Dougal outnumbered Godred. But this was a Viking-style sea battle, not with projectiles, but rather with the two sides engaging in hand-to-hand fighting on the decks of their ships. So Summerled may not have been able to really take advantage of his higher numbers. The chronicles record a bloody battle. A great slaughter of men on either side, actually. Essentially, we think it ended in a stalemate but not the everyone withdrew and the work dragged on kind of stalemate. Rather, the sides came together and signed a peace deal at this point, and Godred agreed to give up some of the islands to his nephew Dougal. This may have been because those particular islands continued to support Summerled and Dougal, and Godred was just planning on biding his time to retake them. What followed was a division of the Kingdom of the Isles, and today it is believed that Dougal became the king of the Southern Hebrides, those closest to his father's kingdom of Argyll. Dougal's kingdom was basically incorporated into his father's, which meant Summerled ruled Argyll and the Southern Hebrides. 
So he owed allegiance to both the King of Scotland and the King of Norway, although in both cases, he was able to act nearly independently. Godred, meanwhile, clearly got the worst of the fight, having to give up parts of his kingdom. Well, things soon got worse for him, and two years later, Somerled sailed down to the Isle of Man with another large navy. He devastated the island and sent Godred running, or, or sailing, I guess, for Norway. This basically made Somerled the king of the Isles in 1158. Now, Godred may have said something like, hey, I'm just in Norway gathering troops to push this pretender out. I'm still the real king. And he was there reaffirming his submission to the Norse king, but let's be honest, Somerled was in charge. And what did he do while he was in charge? Well, we really don't know too much, at least for the first five years after 1158. And that's probably a sign of little warfare. He seems to have secured his kingdom of Argyll and the Isles for a time. He may have even negotiated a peace with Malcolm IV of Scotland to no longer be considered a rebel. At this time of relative peace, Somerled shored up his investments in the churches and monasteries and other non-warfare kingly things like that. But then in 1164, something happened. We know what it was, we just don't really know why. King Malcolm may have demanded some sort of submission, or Somerled may have felt threatened by the newly elevated Stuarts, the one who would eventually rule all of Scotland, and England for that matter, who had been given lands in Galloway. Galloway, as you may recall, had been ruled relatively independently, like Argyll. Well, Malcolm and his steward had come in with an army and put an end to that nonsense. Somerled probably felt threatened. Perhaps there was an actual challenge from Malcolm. So he gathered an army of men from Argyll, from the Kintyre Peninsula, from the Hebrides, and from Dublin. This army, which seems like a motley crew, but including those Norse Dubliners, were probably the standard groups he would use to fight, was large. One source said he used 160 ships. His large army sailed up the Clyde and landed somewhere not far downriver from Glasgow, which may have been their target, although the target may have been the village of Renfrew, just a few miles west of Glasgow, which was almost certainly part of the Stuarts' holdings. Somerled has been accused of trying to overthrow Malcolm and take all of Scotland. This seems unlikely. Either this was a preemptive attack on what he saw as Anglo-Normans taking over western Scotland and were about to make their way to Argyll, or it was an attempt to retake lands that had been very recently Galgahil lands and expand his Norse Gaelic kingdom. Whatever the reason, the invasion did not go well for Somerled. The battle appears to have ended quickly. Somerled was killed early on. One source said he was hit by a well-thrown spear, and his men melted away. He apparently didn't even meet the full Scottish army, just some local villagers who got a lucky shot in. His men weren't just routed. They were decimated after he was killed, so there's a decent chance there was a real Scottish army nearby to pursue the Galgiel invaders. With his death, Somerled's kingdom fractured in several ways. First, about the same time, Godred returned from Norway with an army and retook the Isle of Man. He actually took it from his own brother, who had captured it after he found out Somerled died. But Godred seems to have only retaken Man and the Northern Isles, and for whatever reason, the treaty with Dougal remained in place, leaving the Southern Hebrides, as well as Argyll, to Somerled's clan. Dougal was the king of the Isles until his death, although little is known of his life. Two of Somerled's other sons had their turns. 
Rognol ruled over the isles as well as Argyle and Kintyre, and another son, Angus, ruled as well. It is possible that the inheritance was actually split and that they ruled different lands. They eventually went to war with each other, and it may be that Angus defeated Ragnall, then Ragnall's sons later defeated Angus, but again, the histories are pretty confused. These sons of Summerled were the predecessors of several powerful clans that played important roles in Western Scotland throughout history, including Clan MacDougall, named after Dougal, and Clan Donald, or Clan MacDonald, named after Ragnall's son, Domnall. Summerled's descendants continued to play significant roles in the region for centuries, and these clans remain important to this day. It wasn't until the first half of the 13th century, a hundred years after Summerled's death trying to prevent Scottish interference in his activities, that Argyll was really subdued by the Scottish king. The next few decades saw the Scots push their influence into the islands. The Hebrides were finally pulled away from Norway in the 1260s. Scotland's king threatened to invade the isles if Norway did not sell them. Norway's king responded with a war, and he was defeated. The treaty that followed ceded Man and the Hebrides, although it did confirm Norse control of Orkney and Shetland. Gaelic Scotland, which was in some ways championed and kept going, somewhat ironically, by the Galgiel, the foreign Gaels, did not die out. While the Normans, via England, via Scotland, did take over the country, the West and North remained mostly Gaelic, and eventually Robert the Bruce became king, which helped this cause. This too is ironic, as he was the direct descendant of the Norman knight Robert de Bru, who came to Scotland as part of David I's Norman retinue. But Robert the Bruce, the one who became king of Scotland, was also descended, on his mother's side, from a Galgiel of Galloway, King Fergus actually, and he played upon his Gaelic heritage and used Gaelic unity as a rallying cry for his people during his War of Independence from England. Summerled didn't save Celtic culture in Scotland or create modern Scotland, but he stood as a singular figure during an important crossroads in the history of the region. Marsden writes, Quote, Summerland underwrites the proposal of what I have come to appreciate as his wider importance, beyond that of the founding dynast of the Lordship of the Isles or the forebear of the clan Donald and its related kindreds, as the one figure who, more than any other, represents the first fully-fledged emergence of the medieval Celtic Scandinavian cultural province from which modern Gaelic Scotland is ultimately descended, unquote. At the height of his power, Summerled controlled all of the Hebrides, as well as the Isle of Man, plus Argyle and Kintyre on the Scottish mainland. He may have also been highly influential in Galloway after Fergus died, before Malcolm was really able to assert his own influence there. He ruled a maritime kingdom not entirely different than Dalriada in terms of basic geography. He was a Viking, even if he was only partially Norse, and he was a Scot, even if he was only partially Gaelic. Mostly, he was a bridge from the Viking Age to an independent and united Scotland. Next episode, we'll move south and east, and ahead a century or so, to a man who created a large kingdom out of smaller groups and united a people into a nation that continues to this day. Thanks for listening. 